Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink. I am currently someplace in Brooklyn. This is a little unusual for me. This is different than the uh, usual thing. In a parking garage. Uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a lot of things going on that are very different. Um, What's not different, obviously, is I'm joined by Matt Welch, one of two editors at large at Reason Magazine, which, I mean, they have (laughs) just a deluge. Retirement program. there. (laughs) (laughs) So you could have the 401k or you could become an editor at large. Um, Also, Michael Moynihan, who's a national correspondent for HBO's Vice News Tonight. It's also wonderful to have him in the building. Both of these gentlemen here in Brooklyn, which is not surprising because they live in Brooklyn. You too. I walk. This is true. I also live in Brooklyn. Um, Also, Anthony Fisher, who is a politics editor over at Insider, also in the building, which is great. Also wonderful to have you here. Thank you. I don't live in Brooklyn, but it's nice to be here. You don't. Mm -hmm. No, you live in uh, Ocasio Cortez's uh, America. The other, kind of, the other America. Yeah, I was just out there. What was that? Why don't Why don't people pick up their dog shit out there? What What are you talking about? about It's not Chelsea. No, it's true. It's true. It's terrible. Do you know what isn't terrible? What's that? Andrew motherfucking Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan. Yeah, we are. Who's that? He's a legend. <laughs> oh my God. The man, the myth. The, the blog father. And our special guest. Oh my God. For the day. Good Lord. You Andrew, do? thank you for joining us today. It is you are such very a delight. Welcome. You're very here. welcome. We've been trying to do this for a very long time. I, I, just, re- I just remembered something right now oh uh, about um, my old friend, Andrew Sullivan. <laughs> we were talking about Brooklyn and talking about Queens and everything. There was a time, I seem to recall, that Andrew Sullivan moved to New York City at the behest, perhaps, of Tina Brown. <laughs> Lasted a little bit and wrote a stinging mm. rebuke, <laughs> and it was kind of like the the anti the opposite of E. B. White's book. This is New York. It was like fuck you, New York. Andrew, do you recall this? Yeah, it wasn't just in one piece. It was a oh dear, it God. was a saga. <laughs> it was a saga from the moment I arrived yeah. in this hellhole. Uh, it was uh, it was called New York Shitty. If you remember, yeah, I do. I do. Uh, I'm like, Tina Brown's like, he's going to be nice, really. and he's going to do this, and it's like. Every, he's like, I can't get fucking cable. So no, yeah. a piece about it. Yes. Uh, or a waste disposal unit. Or the fact that last night I seriously couldn't sleep at all because the pipes in the place where I'm staying rattling, just knocking. rattle. It oh, felt yeah, like yeah. a ghost. Yeah. Someone yeah. knocking building. on the Pre-war door. Yeah. It's fucking terrifying. Yeah, they got to drain them because they get the condensation. Mm-hmm. Where, where are you staying? At a friend's house? At a friend's house, Okay, yes. I didn't know if you were keeping a place here, no. No, and no, that no. you were no. over New York shitty. But no. you, do you still think it's shitty? Yeah, it's an awful place. Okay, great. Well, thanks for Why, being here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the process of buying a home here, so thank you for that. But you know, most people, Andrew, uh, as as we all know, and I imagine our, our many listeners will presume, lives in Washington, D.C. It is typically that people shit on D.C., and big up New York, right? But you are you also a DC hater? Because then you're just an anti-American at that point. <laughs> no, I'm a DC lover actually. Yeah. I, I'm a I'm an, I'm a New York lover too. But I, I just realized that it was a definitely a weekend relationship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, got, I got a couple of those. <laughs> don't you don't tell wanna, my weekday relationships about that. <laughs> you don't want to marry them. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, is it now but, that we should confess that? There's a little strain of Andrew Sullivan's DNA in our podcast. In what sense? <laughs> Do you 
Oh, good. I, I, what, go what on, say a little strain of my DNA. Yeah. Yeah. It conjures up all sorts yeah. of That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Rather grim prospect. <laughs> the fifth column. The uh, oh, it's oh, right. Yes, shit. I got Thank you. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> it literally took how long did that take? How long did it take? Fuck you, Jesus. <laughs> there you go. That's it. It I, was, it was <laughs> one bad, bad, and shameful statement sentence in a. Four thousand word piece published three days after the the yeah. the, the, the planes hit the building, um, and it was actually worse than fifth column. And it was actually, if you look at the context, supposed to be defending the idea that uh, the the that New York and the it was hit in in the sense that this was not a conflict which would actually uh, which would would separate blue from red America. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, nonetheless, I, well, I, I did was, write I that. Wrote a, I wrote a page. I've a piece apologized that, forever and ever. I'm yeah. not asking you to apologize. You it's, more, to. it's more funny than anything else. Uh, I wrote a piece that day. I started my uh, uh, my own weblog that day, uh, September 14th. Uh, I, maybe yours was on the 15th, but it was like it was then. Um, and uh, and it, in my very first opening salvo post, I have a sentence that the antiwar.com uh, people have been uh, roasting me and reminding me of ever since to yeah. like you know we're at war welcome to war that kind of thing um but that's we, where i used the word war blog and that's when i named the thing which became a word that is it's the only word i think that i have invented is seriously war blog um, and it was on the same you know, day it's funny that it, it it's those people you're talking about the people that go sifting through your your trash to fi- figure out like what what you said about the iraq war they always existed right and in 2006 2007 i'd be like oh fuck i remember glenn greenwald once pulled something out of my trash and and posted it when he was at salon wasn't he in favor of the war yes he was yes yeah, he was sorry. um but he only, he didn't write about it because he wasn't blogging yet and his first post i think we mentioned this in the show was a like tub thumping anti-immigration post he was like you know what there are laws for a reason mm-hmm. keep the immigrants out but he pulled something yeah it's true so he pulled something out And that was probably 2008 or something like that. And now I just realized that those people were the kind of bleeding edge of this has happens to everyone now for everything you say. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, you should delete your tweets. That's the one thing you have control over is that, you know, you can't delete your shitty old pieces. I have a lot of shitty old pieces. But the tweets, I can, I don't remember half this stuff because, you know, I, you know, I kind of sometimes I drank a little bit. But mm. I, think, I think you should absolutely not delete the tweets because I, I think, agree. It's, I think no. it's a much more rich. I don't want to be canceled. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> Andrew doesn't give a fuck. It's, I do. <laughs> it is a thing that I miss about you being a daily blogger. I'm happy that you made the switch because you obviously you needed to. We, we didn't want to like be the ones to do the intervention but like you had to step away at some point and, and <laughs> focus on a picture of you blogging with, in a subway do you remember that yes yeah, that was true a particularly a yeah. particularly rather yeah. uh, lonely image <laughs> of me in some sort of weird caftan yeah. just like uh, that's great yeah. uh, I'm pretty sure I, I encountered you at my laptop uh, like uh, doing something similar sitting outside a subway uh, like on New Hampshire near 16th where I very yeah. close to where I used to live uh, there uh, but I, what I miss about that is, and, and what was interesting about blogs at that time that have now has sort of transferred to about podcasts, although podcasts kind of live, uh, eat, eat, the, the, the permanence of them is different because it's mostly audio. People aren't making transcripts of them. 
but uh, is that it did record your kind of emotional reactions to things in real time. And uh, and what I say to, uh, for instance, a friend, Lucy Steigerwald and a former employee who whenever she busts my chops about that, like, I'm glad I knew how I felt. On September 14th and September 15th, 2001, it's important, especially for people who were uh, children then, to understand actually how that felt. And I'm glad that there's some kind of record, even though my uh, archives are all bollocks like that. But there's something useful for that. And and one of the reasons why I think that weblogs at that time took off is that uh, you didn't have that kind of human contact with your normal outlets of media. Like if you looked at the op-ed pages, which is supposed to be opinionated writing, um, they were desultory, horrifying, bad places. Everyone was like rehearsing their the exact same things that they'd always written, except now there's 3,000 dead people to like graft. I mean, seriously, Ariadna Huffington had just written a book about polling. And so her first post 9-11, and I'm not saying this to to single her out, the, but her first post 9-11 column was like, um, and this is why if the pollster calls you, hang up the phone because that's, you know, terrorism. And it's like, no, no, yeah. that don't like that's not how you do it. But blogs at that time. <laughs> what happens pe- if Michael Huffington calls you? <laughs> just stay on the just line. Just like if you're a political <laughs> consultant, you say, yeah, run again, Michael. Yeah. Um, you and Howard Schultz, go well, for it. Well, uh, I think part of the reason, though, that Michael's talking about deleting tweets is is personified by this week's phony controversies. And I suppose there's a half dozen of them. Can, I, the same- can I give one that I, w- I want to hear Andrew's response to? Yeah. And he might know of this and might not know of this. Scrotum. Is, uh, yeah. <laughs> Roger, did you say scrotum? Well, yeah. that's what we, I'm oh, always, always called him that. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a terrible, like, You're English t- white person <laughs> <laughs> who has yeah. nicknames for public yeah. figures that I've had since we were in college. You don't college. have to describe yourself because we've got the video cameras. <laughs> as a horrible English white person. We promise, um, we promise never to Ro- release Roger, the footage. Roger Scrotum. Okay, my word. <laughs> I can't even do it now. Um, yes. He's, who has actually kind of taken himself, said uh, fairly recently, I think a Guardian piece, of a profile of him, some of the things he said about gays. He said like, yeah, okay, I was maybe a bit wrong about that. But so he was... Well, he wasn't a- that wrong about that. He, he's... Book on sex is a really interesting book. And by the way, it just said it's not praise. normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not normal. And you wrote to be a book gay. called Virtually Normal, right? Yeah, I wrote a book called Virtually Normal. Yeah. But the idea that it's normal to be a homosexual is stupid. Of course mm. it isn't. We're it's not normal. We're not the majority. We're a small yeah. minority. So he, factually. What he might have, have been a bit more uh, but, but accommodating the, to what would happen feelings. if you went into a gay bar in New York City and said, none of us are normal. You guys are all abnormal. I don't know if that would last very long. <laughs> They'd right? be like, fuck yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's it. There's is. a negative it, connotation associated with with yeah. abnormal. And I was going to refer to the controversy this week with uh, with someone suggesting that uh, some people did something. Uh, which was immediately interpreted as, yeah. oh, yeah. my God, you are suggesting that 9-11 wasn't a big deal and that the people who were responsible for it were perhaps not nearly as bad, which is a completely I, You have to say that that's a, that's a rather strange formulation. It, no? It is. It rather, hit, I hit my ears it is, in a weird It way. is rather strange. It was also so based is, on but something. But so is saying, so is saying yeah. that homosexuality is not normal. Yeah. Well, right? I mean, if my, I'm going my, to, if I'm going to give you something like a generous interpretation I, 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 of but, that, no, but I'm perfectly happy. Cause if I, if I say it's not typical, no, if no, I say it's course. not, it's not, but the average, these things are so wrenched out, different. Of, uh, out of context. And what I care about 
is the sanction. I mean, Roger Scruton was on an architectural committee that the, the government put together that was an unpaid position. And he was bounced by his, you know, fellow Tory party members within 48 hours in or 24 hours. And the guy who wrote the story from the New Statesman misrepresented what he said in uh-huh. this insane way. Right. But my point was it didn't matter. Even if he didn't, you know, he gave it straight down the line or those misrepresenta- misrepresentations were actually what Roger Scruton said. Who fucking cares? Why do we, I mean, we're, we're at this point now, and I was thinking about this the other day. I'm going to be vague about it, but there's a organization that I know and I'm part of, and they do these events sometimes with speakers, right? <laughs> right? It's Andrews. He knows about it. Um, so what, so they bring in speakers and it's, you know, it's New York City. You get a very particular kind of viewpoint. I was thinking the other day, if you brought somebody in, if I brought Andrew in and said, you know, this is a panel on gay rights, uh, Andrew wrote one of the first books on gay marriage, uh, there, there would be not a call. The, the response would not be, because I know these people, oh my God, this would be a great debate. I'd love to see this back and forth is the way it goes. People would say, we have to get get him off the panel. Get rid of him. His ideas are unacceptable. They're unacceptable. We're in this age and this, like Roger Scruton on some pointless committee, the act of canceling him publicly is the important thing. And Andrew, you were on a panel. It's also that it was done by the the editor of the New States. Yes. That we had a photograph uh, of himself popping champagne, and then subsequently, oh my god! Yeah, after tweeting out yeah. misleading quotes from from this conversation he had with with Scruton, then has a picture of himself downing champagne, yeah. and having destroyed or managed to stigmatize this person. Mm. Uh, I, I for a writer to be doing that for someone who's just making arguments he didn't say anything obscene mm-hmm. uh look he's he's always been a little bit of a, a reactionary and he's he's uh but he's a brilliant man he his recent little book on conservatism i think is the best short summary of what conservatism about that i've read in a long time um i've known him for a long time i was last time i saw him was at a <laughs> this is mm-hmm. awful last time i saw him was at an oak shot conference there oh, yeah, you of go course, yes yeah. of course uh <laughs> shocker I'm sorry this Andrew. is such a yeah. nerd i, I, I but he's and, got a tattoo on the shoulder blade but he's <laughs> he's not homophobic for god's sake i mean yeah. again to express an opinion about homosexuality does not make you homophobic and I, and that's what he was also saying about islamophobia um mm-hmm. and i agree i don't i don't like uh reducing someone's complicated arguments or feelings about something to something as crude as a fear and which is panic, also which is if also they're not different. in control of it yeah. so they're not actually rational in- there's a rational way to believe in the fact that you shouldn't uh, have sex, man should not have sex with another man. I mean, in, in the homophobia argument is it's it's slightly different, though. I mean, the, I agree with you on both counts, but the Islamophobia one is you're attacking a belief system, right? I right. mean, and I thought when I read that and I saw the thing about Roger Scruton, and it's located in England, and the first thing that I thought is Hitch, who wrote very soon after nine eleven that that uh, Islamophobia is a nonsense word and we shouldn't use it, and then I thought. 
not not about what that's we used why to I'm say. use Islamofascism instead. Yeah, well, yeah, that's Christopher. It was in those few days between those two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he read your column while he was talking about But you know, there's the thing that comes up so frequently is oh God, with people who knew him and some other people who tweeted me and said, what would Hitch say about this? Imagine Hitch here now with with Trump being this knuckle dragging scumbag that he is. It's, I don't think that now. I think like, oh my God, how much trouble would Hitch get in mm. now? It's like, it's switched. Because mm. I remember a New York Magazine article where he called you a lesbian. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> you remember that? That was, that was, you and know. He, I, mean, I think you got in trouble for that then. It's like saying I went to Cambridge or something. <laughs> 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 it's outside, completely beyond the Andrew, pale. Andrew stopped being a lesbian. It was something to that effect. And the reporter uh, wrote that up, and I can't Good imagine. Day, I think, yes. <laughs> but I, I guess the thing is why we, Here's the thing, I mean, yeah. Who, I mean, if, if, I hate, I mean, this is obvious, but if you are secure in yourself, if you don't, I don't really care what these people think or you say don't? about homosexuality. It's not that interesting to me. Now that I have my basic civil rights in place, I'm happy for them to be as bigoted as they would like to be. But, in but fact, oh, well, welcome to it. But there's something I wanted to ask you, and, and it's, I think it stems from watching the congressional hearings earlier this week where Candace Owens shows up and she's, on this hate crimes panel, which is a bizarre choice, but it actually makes a lot of sense in Congress. Um, but she is being grilled by one of the congresspersons who brings up a quote of hers and suggests that she is defending Hitler or is perhaps some sort of Hitler sympathizer or is giving aid and comfort to Hitler. I'm not exactly sure what he was going for, but it seemed like an obviously disingenuous argument to level at someone who perhaps you have a really deep, meaningful and abiding disagreement with. You spent a very long time in public life advocating for yourself, being a, a civil rights champion, I think it's fair to say. Without um, calling himself that. Without, without yeah. calling himself that. I'm, I'm doing it now, which Thank is fine. You. I think it's totally <laughs> appropriate. But you were contending with people who had genuinely malevolent ideas, at least with respect to your civil liberties. And you did it in a way that I thought was incredibly magnanimous and generous and forceful and honest and at times severe. But there's something about kind of the way that people play politics now when they're encountering people with whom they have some sort of disagreement, the, the unwillingness to sort of give anyone the opportunity to, be, to, to, to have some sort of an earnest disagreement with you and assailing them and saying that all of them must have malevolent intent and it reminded, I was reminded of that both because of Candace Owens, but also because this recent controversy you had where you were in Hollywood on this panel and you went and spoke and there were people shouting you down in this room. And, and it, it just all seems to be so dramatically out of phase with what you were doing when you were genuinely contending with people who had bad ideas. And today where the presumption is everyone who disagrees with me is a monster of some sort. Either they hate America and they wanted the terrorists to win on 9-11 or they're racists, and that explains why they're willing to support Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there were two ways in which it was different then. One was the, the strategy that we took was to be completely straightforward and to engage people, which meant directly, face-to-face, -face, ask me anything, tell me, ask whatever you wanted from me. And mm. these are the arguments that we're putting out there. And so we actually sought out, I particularly sought out, Invitations. I remember going to one really fundamentalist church in like in 
in fact, Peter Hitchens, who is paid to come in and... He's and his own fundamentalist host. church. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's a walking fundamentalist church. Yeah. Church of one. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, and um, uh, where was it? Uh, so you're asked and, to go into a church. Yeah, and, 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 and debate marriage equality with the pastor of this church. There are a thousand people of his own parishioners, and they actually have... It's a, like a mega church. Yes, yeah. and... Uh, and that they have before the debate, they have the vote. How many people, you know, are against gay marriage? And literally, a sh- sea, an ocean of people put their hands <laughs> yeah. up. And I was like, well, you know, in for a penny. Yeah. It's like, uh, uh, and at the end of the debate, actually, they also said um, there was a after we debated all this, uh, and uh, they they had another vote, and uh, just the same number of hands <laughs> went right up. <laughs> I moved, not I think maybe a single person at least publicly, hmm. but. I love that. I found it fascinating. I love talking to people about scripture on this. And I love them. I love the fact that they were engaging with a gay man in good civil terms. The mm. pastor had me to dinner beforehand, which was excruciating, but uh, <laughs> it, it was, but it was a, it was a good faith uh, encounter. And, uh, and then the other thing, was to emphasize what we had in common with everybody else mm. as opposed to how we were different. Uh, it's not that we aren't different. It's that when you're arguing f- from a political point of view and you're talking to everybody about general rights and people, uh, you want to tell them why you're the same as them mm-hmm. and why. So the argument was, you know, our relationships are the same as yours, really, except for this weird gender switch <laughs> that happens. And when you actually said that to people, and, you know, it's also, you know, it's true. A lot of, of white, middle-class, evangelical people came around. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who were just, you know, nominally Christian came around. And it, it happened quite quickly. There's a, what people understand is a great power in surrendering that defensiveness. Mm. Come, ask me anything. Let me talk to you about this. Uh, you, you don't think everything would have gone much faster if you just started castigating everyone for being a white <laughs> cisgender <laughs> monster? Well, the truth is that the, the I was shut down, tried to, I, Virtue Normal was almost shut down in this book tour by the lesbian Avengers. Oh, <laughs> Speaking wow. of lesbians. <laughs> no, it was, I was picketed at various bookstores for an, for a book arguing for marriage equality, it it was quite a surreal experience. What was their argument? <laughs> Why was that? I was I was putting up the I was propping up the heterosexist yeah, yeah. patriarchal order. Well, yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah. And I was mainly about suppressing women. I was, to which my response was always: Is there anything less patriarchal than a lesbian marriage? <laughs> 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 what do you want me to do? Yeah. I mean, that's I'm fighting for that. Uh, and they're still and they've gone back to it now. And that's what's so depressing that we made. But on a bigger scale, right? I mean, as you say, I mean, people people changed on this. And people were generous to you when you were at the church. The hands were exactly the same after as they were before. But, you know, the interaction, I think, I think that, you know, you know, we've, it's, it's the old cliche that will and grace and television shows that humanize people, actually seeing them. And now we're in a, a culture, particularly one when we're talking about the culture of debate, that's completely disconnected. So, you know, everyone I think here knows, um, Katie Herzog, who did an event last night with somebody she disagreed with. And everyone's like, Oh my God. 
God, can you believe this? I'm like, no, no, we used to do that all the time. They were called events. And now they're <laughs> thinking, like somebody who really disagrees with her, her on stage. And I, I heard, I wasn't there. I heard it was, it was quite good, quite interesting. I'm waiting for the podcast. I'll, I'll, I'll happily I mean, listen is, to it. This is what I was brought up to do. I yeah. Mean, I was a debater in high school and, uh, at the union at Oxford, I would, I actually had a pretty good record of always taking the losing side. Because <laughs> That's a pretty good record. <laughs> it was, no, it was always more interesting yeah. to take the harder case, uh, in the, op- but the whole point was that you enjoyed the conflict mm-hmm. and it wasn't scary. Uh, and it was actually, you know, made you, Come alive, and, and there uh, were stakes at that time. It's not as though there were not stakes for you. I, I, there were personally. higher stakes, weren't there? Well, we would, we we were, we were all dying, and I mean that was the other context you actually mm. thought. Uh, I wrote the book because I genuinely believed that that would be the last. The first and last book I would ever be able to write. 91, wow. 92? This is uh, Love like Undetectable? Uh, no, Virtually Normal. Virtually Normal. came out in actually 95. 95. Um, and yeah, the same week my best friend died. And mm. so it, it, there was a lot of stake. <laughs> and, and, and you, you were diagnosed with HIV when? 93. 93. Wow. So you had had two years of writing that book and just saying, this is my swan song, my, my both entry into the scene and my exit from the scene. Yeah. That was, that was, and I actually in the preface of the book put the date as the date of my serial conversion. Mm. Wow. So that it was a reminder to me that basically the decision was, I mean, it was editing the magazine or something. Yeah. But Magazine, I, the New Republic. The New Republic, yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea of actually uh, producing a book in this time, as well as dealing with my own health and my friend, blah, 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 um, was really tough. Um, but would you have taken up that issue if you didn't see your health as this thing that was going to shorten your 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 writing career and your life was that yes, was that a I very hard have, issue? But, you would have. But yes, but but I but I would not have done it as quickly. And I wouldn't have done it with that sense of urgency. Uh, and uh, I think that was absolutely, and I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't also, in the process of figuring this out from a non-leftist point of view, mm-hmm. what is gay politics? What do we do with this question? But let me ask yes, you. Yes, no, the yeah. other thing was that during that process, when I was doing the intellectual work for it, I could see uh, couples taking care of each other. Yeah. I mean, the actual, to witness the intensity of that bond, which people had right literally till the hour of their death, uh, was to under, underline completely why the denial of our rights in this respect and our dignity as citizens was so profound. And, I mean, I'll tell you one story. If you don't, I mean, it's a... So we're here you're, 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 you're here for that reason. Well, it was kind of along the way, really, that a friend of mine who was, uh, he was a great guy. He, his name was uh, Joe Walsh. He was a sort of Irish Catholic guy in New York and a manic bodybuilder, like always. <laughs> and his joke always to me, cause, and also manically insecure about it and masculinity and everything. So every time we met each other, he'd be like, do I look big? Do I look big? Do I, do I look big? He's like 240 pounds or something. And you're just like, no, you look really skinny, but whatever. Anyway, yeah. so I, but I he, literally say that to the people on the subway. And they're like, what is wrong with you? And they, they always say yes, too, by the way. But then, he, but then, of course, he gets AIDS and he's down to 92 yeah. pounds in the hospital. And I go to visit him. Um, 
So, of course, the first thing you say is, uh, he says to me is, do I look big? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we talk, and he was awesome. He, he, was, he was very funny. And um, it was in one of those AIDS wards in the early times. And behind him, next to him in the, in the ward, there was a bed with the curtain pulled around it. And from behind the curtain, I heard someone singing a sort of pop song. Uh, and I said to Joe, uh, you know, that's, well, at least someone here is not that depressed. I mean, they're singing the song, at least. He said, oh, no, 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 that's not him. He died this morning. That's his uh, boyfriend. And he's been thrown out of the house, will not be allowed to go to the funeral. Oof. And this is the last place he has been able to be with his lover before he died. And it's the last, it's, it's, and that song apparently is their song. And I, I, the nurses just didn't have the, the gumption to ask them to leave. So it was not just an intellectual argument at that point. It was like, no one's going to do that to anybody ever again, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm, even though we have a few, may only have a few years, what I can do is actually write the, the bloody argument and, and get it nailed down so that, so that then when I'm dead, this can be used as a template. I mean, it might be a rather odd question, but how long did you live thinking you were soon going to die? Two and a half years. And after that, you but, settled well, in and said, I, I, can, I, can, I can survive much longer because of this this The new drugs, of drugs kicked in, in, yeah. in 96. So maybe it was three, a little bit more than three years. What were those three years like? I mean, when you're, the intellectual pursuits, that's basically, it's what you do, it's what you were born to do, it's your job, writing. I mean, what was that kind of time like? Did you feel this sense of urgency with everything that you did? Absolutely, um, as concentrates the mind yeah. wonderfully, to, and it was dramatized by the fact that um, my best friend, who was my age at the time, and we were born, we were both Catholics, and blah, 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 that he was dying at the same time. So you 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 saw your future in the broken and bruised bodies of of your brothers, and it was. It was not an easy death. It was a horrible death mm. from diseases they had no way of dealing with that created unbelievable agony. So you head. just beat that, basically. Yeah, I slipped under the wire. Couple, wow. A year, a couple of years, something like that. Right? Yeah. Wow. And, and it's weird because within the gay community, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm the leading edge. No, everyone for a generation or two above me is dead, is gone. Mm -hmm. It's a, this weird demographic bulge. Wow. But uh, I, I mean, it's obviously you're somebody who lived in the cities and it's much more noticeable. So you saw generations of people, clubs that you went to, basically, you know, emptied of people because of this. No, not because of, not because of AIDS. No, in fact, the clubs and, and bars were more full. Okay. Yeah. What's killed the bars and clubs is the internet. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's kind of amazing that that's happened. Um, but it's also, and it, you know, just go on an app. You can you can meet another man and have fall in love, have an entire relationship, having 
no contact with the gay community, as it were. Okay. Yeah. I understand this happens in the hetero world as well. No, it's, 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 I, try, I try to make it happen nothing, absolutely nothing. I mean, it's incredible. I've got I have every app. I've got like, you know, I've got like Armenian, somebody on the bingo said I always say Albanian, so I'm going to say Armenian now. Um, <laughs> uh, but is that, to, to like kind of Camille talks about this, uh, quite frequently of Uh-oh. like poo-pooing the idea of a black community. Mm. W- you just said those two words to the gay community. What is the gay community now? Or do you actually believe it is a thing? I think it. I, what I was describing there was a particular moment yeah. in time yeah. of a community that was forced because of an unbelievable emergency to, if it weren't already in existence, to will itself into existence. The fact that we they did that, we did that, uh, given what the attitudes were at the time and how guilty and ashamed we all felt underneath all of that, I think it's a miracle. I don't know how quite we, we got there. Um, uh, but uh, today, no. I mean, I think there is, there are, it's, it's fractured into many different things. In fact, I, I wrote a piece in 2005 called The End of Gay Culture, which kind of said this is, gone hmm. it's gonna go even further um and uh and it's 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 a lot of gay white men in one corner uh it's a lot of lesbians a long way away uh that's the thing when people talk about the lesbian and gay community i'm like do you have you have you ever been in, been to one like, i live in Provincetown, and even yeah. there it's kind of you it's know pretty straight city <laughs> no, I mean the gay lesbian thing. Even yeah. there, it's it's still a vinaigrette, you know. Yeah, if it, yeah exactly. It will it will it will naturally separate and become <laughs> yeah. less, more and more different from itself. Yeah. It has to. It requires constant effort. And less delicious too. Yes, and because, <laughs> it's not good. Um, yeah, I always. This is one of the things I say about with um, with sex differences and. Uh, and whether gender matters, whether sex biology matters with respect to to uh, uh, gender and culture, uh, and I will look at the gay male world as an experiment in a subculture that is all men, uh, and it's a lot of fucking. <laughs> wow, that's you just said what everyone at this table was thinking. Wow, you know, in your fifties, yeah. you're on your married, yeah. Too, so like, come on, that's do you know good. how many times a week I'm like, God, I wish I was getting so just I download the app and it's someone like it's like an apparition they show up and I'm like, oh, awesome. But it's that's also it's yeah. also brutal, of course, because it's so based on brutally awesome. Men. <laughs> well, that's one of the yes. Well, anyway, we could talk about that another time, maybe. <laughs> Talk about uh, that with Michael <laughs> after the podcast. Uh, I have a, I have a, a, a question. But this idea of an LGBTQ community drives me up the fucking Well, I'll wall. say one thing before Matt asks this question. I saw you last year at dinner, and at one point at the end of the dinner, I think we were all um, deep in our cups, you said something very funny. And it, you said, I used to be the gay, HIV-positive, kind of vaguely Tory-ish, Catholic British brain. Catholic who loved Oakshot, and now I'm just a cis man. <laughs> well, yeah, wow, that was a... Yeah, a white cis man. Yeah, yeah. You changed quite a bit. That's what you used to be. Isn't cis and white... I mean, I don't understand vocabulary, no, but can, isn't that... Can, 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 can
But Matt, you're saying sorry. No, just uh, <laughs> sort of I don't know what that noise was. Andrew, <laughs> Andrew grabbing my you don't know what this means. I don't. Um, <laughs> but it's not my business to educate you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You I wasn't asking. You, you have the privilege to question. not care what this uh, means. No, uh, Jonathan Rauch, in his great book uh, "Kindly Inquisitors," he wrote a 20th or 25th, I think 20th um, anniversary update, either in the prologue or an afterward, and and which he was trying to defend because he wrote this originally in the kind of early 90s in the wake of the Salman Rushdie affair and also the first kind of uh, uh, wave of political correctness on campus. And so he said, "Okay, we have to defend this uh, uh, question of free speech um, 20 years later um, using the best of the arguments on the other side. And one of them is that that he was trying to defend against the argument is that, hey, look, vulnerable people um, can't be expected to – they need extra protection of free speech in order to protect themselves against the dominant majority, which is against them, that's kind of sort of wielding the free speech against them. And he brought up the the uh, the uh, example of Frank Kameny, who's a, an, an incredible uh, uh, figure in doing this, and he made an argument that I find um, very persuasive, but you would probably know much more than I would about, which is that, hey, look, no, it's when you're outnumbered 90 to 10 – that is precisely when you need that free speech, as unfettered as possible, because if it isn't unfettered, the 10 percent isn't going to be able to talk. How has seeing this transition from when you first were talking about this stuff 25 years ago to this kind of more woke world that we live in now, a more canceled culture, what has that taught you about or how does that affected the way that you look at that particular question, free speech and minorities who are struggling for their rights. Well, the one thing I learned from reading or understanding uh, the history of homosexual activity uh, and, and subsequent, well, that's just a long history of that, but also the history of, of It's weird. I was looking at Moynihan yeah. during that. Like, I was like, what? I st- I'm the only one who went the other way. I started and I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> homosexual activism, as I say. Um, the word only existed in the late 19th century. It didn't exist before that. Although um, you are probably the last person I know that uses the word homosexual as much as you do. I find it to be the most neutral and simple, yeah. and I'm not afraid. So it's deliberate. It's totally deliberate. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's my yeah. ownership of my attempt to own it, really, yeah. um, and not be afraid of it. Yeah. When, as soon as people don't want to recall the name, it means you are afraid of it for some reason. Why? You, you, want, you think you have a pathology or something? <laughs> Why? Um, no, one thing you notice is the only rights that gay people had for the longest time was the First Amendment right. That's all they had. All they had was, was what they wrote or printed if they could get away with it. Um, as, and they were able to make arguments from the late 19th century onwards for the emancipation and equal rights for homosexuals. And so you see these amazing magazines like the Mattachine, Mattachine Review or the, the pamphlet put out by the Daughters of Bilitis in the, in the 50s. Um, and they're really quirky magazines. Um, they've got a lot of individual voices in them. There's debate in the magazine itself. Uh, and uh, so, and again, we're not even 10%. What are we? I think we're only really about 4%, maybe something, I don't know, something like that. Um, and to keep in mind that it, you were born and grew up in England in a, a place, but you were alive when it was illegal, like gay relationships, gay sex actually was illegal, right? 
When, uh, when was that? That was that was fairly. I mean, well, in in the District of Columbia, I, mean, I no, actually I, yeah. committed crimes on a regular basis. I was going to yeah, say so, sodomy has been illegal in yeah. all of our lives. That's I'm talking about you being gay, not that you oh. commit crimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, that stuff that you sold me was pretty good, though. Um, but no, that, that was a big debate in Parliament. That that you know. It, w- it wasn't legal to, to be in a... It was 1967. 67, okay. Uh, yes, yeah, so yeah. I was four years old. Yeah. But, you, I mean, it's still strange to think that you lived in a time that your life... Alive in a time that your lifestyle was actually criminalized. Mm. Well, it was criminal in America oh, where yeah, sure, I lived sure. in my bedroom in yeah. my 20s. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Not, it's really as simple as that. I mean, it took a long, long where, time. Where, where, where did you live in your 20s? It was illegal for homosexual to enter the United States. Oh. If you were not an American How did citizen, you get through? from ni- <laughs> uh, from nineteen uh, right up until nineteen ninety four. Wow. Uh, well, you just you, when they ask you if you're homosexual, you say no. Yeah. Uh, what was I going to do when I was twenty one years old? Just yeah. suddenly being presented with that question, it was like the last thing I expected upon immigrating to the United States would be outed you know, by the actual yeah. immigrant. Could offices. you imagine Roy Cohn coming through? Because it's like you know, it's like, are you a gay communist? Because they actually ask the communist, well, communist too. They still ask yeah. that. It's and he's like, absolutely not. I'm not. And then oh, yeah, I am a little gay. So, <laughs> <laughs> Were you one. living out at the age of twenty one? Uh, no, I was living, I, I came out uh, about a year and a half later. Hmm. I, I love the direction of all this, and this is not at all what I planned, so to speak, to the extent I do any planning that anyone respects uh, no. around here. No. It's just, the answer is no. Andrew, why are you gay? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it becomes. Why, why, why are you, why so are much you with the gay? Yeah. <laughs> Homosexual, yeah. Why, Michael. Why are you I, I, I more to ways to make fun of me? <laughs> no. I'm making fun of you because you're being gay. I, I, I'm making fun of us because we're just being boring. I well, like being Which is, no. by the way, an incredible Pet Shop Boys song. We can talk about it later. <laughs> you're a huge Pet Shop Boys fan. Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I talk about being boring. Yeah. about your column that I know is coming tomorrow because oh, yeah. for some time now you've been writing these indispensable barn burners which are Excuse released, you. published every Friday. I'm just going to continue to shower you with praise. Okay. We'll get you into the sack eventually. Um, <laughs> I, 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 um, I wanted to talk about what you might be writing about tomorrow. You mentioned that it might be immigration and immigration has certainly been making the rounds recently. And again, as you were talking about advocating for for civil rights for homosexuals in this country. Um, I thought a lot about immigration and I thought a lot about the particular disputes that we've had about immigration in the United States over the course of the past two administrations, really beyond that. But with the past two administrations, they both had this similar circumstance with respect to a number of illegal immigrants who are attempting to come into the country to a migrant crisis, I think is perhaps the appropriate phrase to use so that we can kind of bookend it appropriately. Um, but these these migrant crisis and bo- crises in both administrations um, and with the Trump administration more recently, this child separation thing that's been going on. And um, I think there's a there's a way in which we talk about this and the dispute that's been taking place where it's it's incredibly emotional but it oftentimes feels disconnected from the rather massive number of people who are fleeing desperate circumstances back at home, who are oftentimes walking hundreds of miles or traveling here through dangerous circumstances with coyotes and all kinds of other crazy stuff to come in order to, to try to come to the United States to make a better life for themselves and then facing extraordinarily uncertain circumstances once they get here to the border. And there's the demonization that you get from the White House on the one side 
And then there is the sort of romantic Pollyanna-ish response from from progressives, uh, I think, generally speaking. Um, and perhaps even the, the Pollyanna-ish approach of libertarian weirdos like myself, who I generally believe in open borders, but there are practical constraints to uh, a conviction like that in a circumstance where well, you have this big entitlement state. I'll tell you, that was my reflexive position for the longest time. I mean, I'm an immigrant. I, I believe in free movement of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I particularly love uh, the, the multiracial, multicultural mix of America. That's why I wanted to come here in part. Um, uh, and so I saw absolutely no problem with it. In fact, more, more the better um, and favored amnesty basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, then, then one notices something that comes from a period of extraordinary mass immigration in both Europe and in the U.S., um, which is uh, the emergence of white nationalism and uh, a white response to the notion of their countries becoming less white. Uh, and to be totally blunt about it, I mean, that's in some ways there's a kind of interesting convergence from the left that believes everybody is sort of... Uh, uh, obsessed with race and someone like Dan Eric Kaufman in this new really interesting book White Shift that starts talking about it uh, from the right that literally it's true if you change dramatically the ethnic demography of a particular region so quickly uh, there will be especially when it's almost all non-white immigration there will be a, a defensive reaction we know this we've seen it it's and it's, it's, it's by the way why it happens so quickly and much quicker than it happened in the United States in much a concentrated period in Europe. I mean, you see yeah. these, I mean, of course, it rings certain places in the United States. I mean, also some places you don't realize you're in northern Iowa and it's all Hispanic town because it's a, a sort of hog processing plant. I mean, I've seen a few of these. But in Europe, I mean, you see it's 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 pretty much everywhere. There's And, and the argument, by the way is never one about immigration because very sensitive about these issues, sensitive about talking about race, um, and particularly now talk, talking about religion. And so they talk about health care. That's how you talk about race. Yeah, there are other ways to talk about it. Yeah, there's other ways. Like, we used to be able to go right in the hospital, and now we can't. What this happened in the past couple Yes, that's uh, what they say. Not only that, but they <laughs> even, even the British, in order to avoid being honest about the racial aspect, which I think is actually... Deep, deep in heaven, then go to inventing problems like trade hmm. uh, with Europe, which the English and the British would, I mean, I, there's no reason to put up barriers uh, to our trading it's partners. Mental, yeah. or to, or, uh, but they, they know it's not permissible to say we'd like to keep our country a little bit more English for a little longer. And so they, uh, they, 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 they sublimate that into other... Do you find that do you find that people tend in situations like this when you're not allowed to inhabit what I would think is, is sort of a middle ground on that, which is being you know having these sort of progressive instincts about a lot of things, but saying, well, we just need to talk about it because it's something that is obvious. No, it's more than that. Do, but, but, no, no, but I wonder if 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 does that push people to further to the right? And I see someone like Morrissey. I mean, Morrissey was was talking about uh, Britain first. 
And Britain First is is where you know Nick Griffin's bo- bloated body would go if it was was trying to find a new party. It's a weird little sect of Tommy Robinson types in Morrissey, which even Info, Infowars denounced Britain First. Yeah, I mean they're bananas people. But you know I, I see these people that that especially in Sweden, which I lived in Sweden, came back and went back and shot two these, pieces. There. These so are, crazy. The people that I knew that are now supporters of the Sweden Democrats. If we if 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 immigration is not restrained. In Europe, we're going to have a neo-fascist government in every capital. Hmm. You're almost and, getting there now, and it's That's getting the David it's, from analysis, it's getting right? close. He's abs- David is absolutely right, yeah. and uh, uh, and even now with this Brexit thing, the, the thing to watch is that now having voted majority in a referendum where everybody said in advance, "This is it, this is our decision. There will be no going back." And we're told endlessly this is going to be a horrible economic shambles. It's going to be a disaster. It's a disaster. It's terrifying terror. They still went ahead and voted to leave the EU. And three years later, on the date it's supposed to happen, it's been this week extended. Mm-hmm. What do you think your average leave voter feels at this point? Oh, God, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. If you wanted to set populism a fire, right? You yeah. will ignore the results of a popular referendum, and not only that, but explain why you were ignoring it by saying the people who voted for it were too dumb, exactly, or believed lies, like the the Macron position. Yeah, and if he think, regardless of the merits of this issue, just politically speaking, uh, we've got to find a way to talk to those people and to bring them back to the center. And, and there's, and it's getting harder and harder. And on this particular issue, again, for me to say, as I did want, right, uh, it's not racist to just simply want to conserve the the place and environment you've always wanted, you've always been in, and want to keep it as it always was. That's not inherently racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's conservative. Which actually sounds, uh, sounds a little bit like Obama, which I think was from this past Saturday, who said something like, uh, "I worry sometimes when." Uh, as we think about how to deal with the immigration issue, we, we think that any uh, moves towards assimilation of the existing, of newcomers to the existing culture is somehow a betrayal. Should we want to encourage newcomers to learn the language of the country they're moving to? Of course. Does that mean that they can never use their own language? No. Of course, that it doesn't mean that, but it's you know it's not racist to say ah if you're going to be here, then you should learn the language of the country that you just arrived at. Yeah, I mean, uh, but it's important to is, know how he said that too. I mean, it's 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 a brilliant it's Richard Burton like reading, Camille. But at the same time, <laughs> I mean, he said very I'm probably going to replace not drunk enough. I, I saw. I mean, he was like he's stalking the stage. You know, he does it not behind the lecture and thing. Stalking the stage, back, you know, wagging the finger, and it sounded like a very forceful. And I he said, he was like Richard Spencer. What you're saying? <laughs> yeah. He hates identity politics. And he's shown that a lot recently. He, he yeah. always hated it. He always opposed it. What's amazing about the Democratic Party mm. is that they are constantly attacking the very last two-term president 
and his beliefs and his policies and his ideas. Do you uh, think they're attacking him personally, or it's more like the the vibe that he's coming from? And he, no, and he, they 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 don't want to. They, obviously, everybody likes him. Yeah, mm-hmm. the left like it's impossible on the left not to like Obama, but there is uh, and there is an honest hatred of him on the left, though the far left, um, okay. and in mo- most of the Twitter left, mm. uh, who really has no time for him, or uh, uh, like Tanahasi Coates has no time for. For Obama, he did dig dig into some of the identity politics stuff when it was resurgent in yeah. 2014 with Trayvon Martin. When he talked about if I had a son, he'd look a lot like Trayvon, and with the the police involved deaths, he he sort of sided with the the protesters. And I don't think he did he did not do enough. I'll I'll be explicit. He didn't do enough to try to tamp down some of the hysterical claims um, well, associated thing I'd say with the Black in, Lives Matter in movement when he had the of, opportunity to do it. Well, I would no say in defense true. of Obama is that I, you know, no one saw this coming. No, this no, level, no one saw this, this coming where, where in this debate, me. like identity is everything. It, it leads every conversation I have at work. It leads yeah. every conversation I have when it's talking about stories. But it, but it was still an opportunity for it him was to very push different. back. And, uh, and, and know, the circumstance perhaps was a little bit different because yeah. when Obama was running for office, the challenge against him, like a, a, another uh, person who's running for, for president right now, when he was running for president, the question was, are you, are you sufficiently black? And his defense was, you know, this is a ridiculous, illegitimate question. It was to try to double down on his blackness, to assert how black he was and to buy into this polluted, outmoded, gross. And at the same time to say that, like, uh, it's okay to not be that black. I, no, I wouldn't he, see him do that. No, no, no. Like, when he was like, throwing his grandmother, that, his white not, grandmother, under the bus. Sure, that happened. But okay, I'm, but I'm saying like he was mindful. I think because he's pretty good at politics, right? Uh-huh. Of being able to benefit from like both sides of that argument. You're right. I suppose it, by contrast with today, like the the way that we talk about whiteness as essentially some sort of congenital sin, like we we don't do that. He wasn't doing that back then. In fact. The one thing that Kaufman argues is that whiteness is a critical integrative factor culturally in America for immigration purposes. Hmm. That essentially will be a very high majority white country for the foreseeable future with lots of Hispanic last names. So that, hmm. Just like Italians. Uh, this Italian, will, in the sense that, the sense that Hispanic people white, Italians white. will become white. Jews and become white. They already do in many white. ways. Um, uh, and... And and thirty at least thirty percent of Hispanics want to cut immigration. That's uh, true. Mm-hmm. And many I mean, never them, forget that Donald Trump's numbers with Hispanic voters went up. Yeah, yeah. up over Romney, up yeah. over McCain. Yeah. yeah, and and also immigrated to America because they want America to be America. They don't. They they left where they're from to come somewhere else. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is when you have it. Is really all about pace. It's just mm. all about the pace of it. Mm. Uh, you know, support for Trump is not correlated with living in an area with people of, who are not non-white. It's living. It's correlated very strongly with living in an area that has recently become quite non-white. Uh, so it's the pace of it, and it is an incredibly powerful thing. I mean, in England, for example, I just I went back, back there, and and uh, I go back there every year. Um, but uh, it staggered me that. Thirty-seven percent of the population of London wasn't born in Britain. 
So that, that's 40% of the population of London came from somewhere outside the country. And it's important to say that they were born outside of Britain, not saying they're not sort of ethnically British. They were recently born they in the were, past they, yeah, 40, what's really 50, also years. That's, yeah. that's, in, that's in an unrelated controversy, you can actually get good food in London well, that's now. True. I love it. We love it, right? Because that's who we are. But uh, and we can go to London and it be another fabulous blue state, but, yeah. big global city. But when well, do you my, feel like pointing this? When my brother, yeah. when, when I mentioned London to my brother, and he said, "Well, uh, it's not really our capital anymore, is it?" He was dead on. I mean, people he, from England, yeah, not London, but England, go to London and experience something quite similar to abroad. Yeah, it's like Americans who go to New York, really. Like, yeah. it's uh, it, look at these but, like but, financial but, traders but, from but Poland. The, but the thing is, though, New York has always been. America is about immigration. New York has always been this huge churn, churn of of immigrants. London never really was. It was people left England. They didn't go there. Um, and if you actually look at uh, the numbers, here was one that just blew me away: that more gross. I don't. I mean, gross, not as opposed to net. <laughs> I don't want to go into a Tucker <laughs> situation. Um, uh, the, the total number of not net of immigrants that came into Britain in one year mm-hmm. in the 2010s was the same number of people as came between 1066 and 1950. Wow! In one year. Wow. That's. It's 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 strange for a country to to an island country that has historically always been an island. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually historically been incredibly, almost genetically inbred as a, as as, an, as islands. Uh, my my DNA came back ninety uh, percent British class Irish. <laughs> like, well, thanks. It's just a you uh, right. <laughs> yeah, you right. Yeah, you right. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't have your heart if I were you. <laughs> Fucking uh, Andrew. I should I should ask something because um, I I suspect we will get slapped by listeners if I don't yeah. ask this question. But today, Julian Assange, after what seven eight years yeah. living inside of seven the uh, Ecuadorian embassy, everybody's uh, dream was Grand drug beard. out yeah. by uh, by police by law yeah. enforcement. In the beginning of the day, there were a lot of questions about what exactly that, he oh. would be charged with. Yeah, uh, it turns out that he's being charged with essentially helping to hack into mm-hmm. secure systems to help facilitate the hacking that Chelsea Manning, then Bradley Manning, um, did when providing him with a bunch of uh, confidential stuff. And by a bunch, I mean like the yeah. most ever. Terrible. Um, yeah. So this is this is a pretty huge deal. Um, it, it, it looks like he might be extradited to the U.S. The U.S. wants him to be. The, the U.K. picked him up for that reason. Happen, yeah. um, but there are some, some questions about that. I wonder, just going around the room, what your thoughts are on this as it pertains to sort of the what a good outcome looks like here. I don't know if there's, there's no, a sensibility that, that a he's a sort of hero or villain yeah. as to whether or not he's even a journalist. But But even more than that, specifically what this means for, for journalism, 
the fact that he is in fact being prosecuted and the fact that well be be very careful about this because uh-huh. i mean you see that very very strange indictment which mm-hmm. i was not what i was expecting at all mm-hmm. i mean it's a pretty thin read in there um and and i say this as somebody who as a person ideologically the way he you know had a show on rt all everything about julian the people he hired i do not like him that's yeah. that is an understatement he's certainly not a careful operator no i mean the under Redacted stuff is another problem. Yeah, Cause people to die. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. He says no, but I, I. But here's the thing I would say about this: is that they they specifically avoided, it seems, anything about journalism, because the, the 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 charge is that he was trying to uh, sort of descramble this hash, which is you right. know how a, a password is obscured, and that there, right, and the suborning of hacking is what he did. If he received the information. They're not charging him for that. Right. There's nothing there. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, the Obama administration, you know, pulled back from that. I mean, Trump, of course, I tweeted this today in 2010, uh-huh. said, you know, Assange should be, um, they should meet up the death penalty. Uh-huh. And then he said, I love, I love WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks. I love Assange. And today he said, campaign. I don't know who he is. <laughs> See, I don't know nothing about WikiLeaks. I don't know anything I've never about heard, WikiLeaks. Uh, I heard of this. But, you know, it's really difficult to separate sometimes because Assange is such a personality. I, I, I had a ding on my phone. Mm-hmm. I usually fucking turn this thing off. I don't know uh-huh. why I didn't turn uh-huh. it off this morning. Ding. And I'm like, oh my God, somebody's dead. And I open it up. <laughs> hey, dang it, somebody's dying, right? I open it up. And I'm like, oh, holy shit, they're bringing Wilford Brimley out of the <laughs> Ecuadorian embassy. That was a hell of a beer. Like, he looked like a prospect. It's a hell of a beer. No, I know. It's like, I can only just, imagine the smell inside I, of the oh Ecuadorian embassy. I mean, that was the real reason that, you, you know, I think he thought that a man named Lenin was going to protect him. By the way, <laughs> here is the thing, um, people who are doing exactly what Julian Assange is doing. Go to dictatorships that are firm dictatorships. <laughs> if you go to Ecuador, Ecuador, Rafael Correa was a scumbag, but it wasn't clear that he was going to stay. He passed that on to somebody of his own party, Lenin Moreno, who decided, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. And I'd be a little more liberal. What is a firm dictatorship? Can you give me, give me one? Uh, Cuba or Venezuela. Oh. That was, those are places where both mentioned. Uh, for Michael Moynihan endorses Venezuela. I do. Everybody. No, I, no, I, 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 I think yeah. if you're going somewhere mm-hmm. and you don't want the new guy to come in and be like, you know, you're stinking up the place and the cats are a problem <laughs> and he's criticizing him on Twitter, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Just don't do this that. The lawsuits. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he's, he was criticizing Lennon Moreno and saying like, you're kind of a dick on Twitter using the Ecuadorian embassy's Wi-Fi connection, which they had shut down <laughs> yeah. at various points. So he had to use the data plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It was unbelievable. It wasn't even unlimited. <laughs> and it, there is a bit, I, Lennon Brando, um uh, did a video, he kind of a bullshit video today, to be honest, where he said he violated the terms of his asylum. And, you know, it seems like a bunch of annoying things that he was doing, uh-huh. but I don't think there were initially any terms to his asylum. But, you know, this idea that he was going to be to be extra to the U- U.S., where where did he run from the, the his, you know, I mean, he's being charged with a sort of bail bail violation uh-huh. in England. What was he doing in England? Hanging he was around, going to the going to the front line club. He wasn't extradited. Right. There was no extradition at that time. Mm-hmm. And the uh, why he ran to the embassy was because of Sweden, right? And now the Swedes are talking because about the sexual misconduct re- reopening yeah. that case. And that, that actually was that, the time that everyone fell the the left fell out of love with um, Julian Assange when he started before the Hannity stuff. Before he started doing that, he said that Sweden was the Saudi Arabia of feminism, <laughs> and then it started where he was kind of this kind of reactionary, almost 
alt-left, alt-right guy. It was a weird intellectual hybrid at some point. But Andrew, you are saying? I don't know, I was just mesmerized. Really, <laughs> by my voice, songs. by my beautiful face. Well, <laughs> you were always cut such a, such a jib. You, 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 <laughs> cut of my jib? Yes, I like You'd the, like to cut my jib? I like the cut of your jib. <laughs> People hate speech. This, this is the one that we're going to be on tape? That's the extras. I promised I'm not releasing the tape. I said I want to bring something up. Uh-huh. Can I bring something up? Yes, yeah. please. Pope Benedict XVI up. Speaking of Julian Assange. Yes. People in exile. Who decided to issue his opinions mm. about the sex abuse crisis over which he, of course, uh, presided. You I mean, are a Catholic, Andrew. For those uh, listeners who don't know that, you are a Catholic. You've always been a Catholic. I was at Mass Sunday. Yeah, my, uh, and my family is Seventh-day Adventist. So we are kind of sworn enemies there. I'm a yeah, former Catholic. I, I, I love we were, we, we're, we're, We've completely lost it, the Catholics. <laughs> we'll, we'll embrace everybody. We're not. We're really not. <laughs> I mean, the, the France is Catholics. Those of us. Yeah. Um, Robert Mugabe did the did the sermon on Sunday. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so the Pope. First of all, there shouldn't be two popes. You, if you resigned, shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. Or like, like it's, uh, it's die, really just like. And secondly, also, when there is a war in the church, basically between the old guard and the Francis operation, it's incredibly important that one of the popes doesn't take. They don't take sides. Um, just as a sense of responsibility to the institution, I think. I mean, I'm I'm consistently underwhelmed with the way Ratzinger has, has behaved. And this kind of letter that he put out, first of all, it's a little bonkers. Explain uh, explain Ratzinger's, the, the retired Pope's letter. Uh, it is a weird rant about sex and sex and porn uh-huh. and gay sex in seminaries. Uh, and... That's where everything went wrong in the 1960s. Oh, he said it was the 60s. The 60s, yeah. the 60s, the 60s sexual 60s revolution. were responsible for uh, yeah. molesting uh, children. Yeah. And it, nothing of that like, like yeah. that had ever happened before. Uh, so he's apparently Brent Bozell. And then the looking office. back to his past, he was thinking, <laughs> the first thing, he, he didn't like sex education. He thought that was bad in schools. And then I remember arriving, I'm going to put in his youth. His little I remember Am arriving I, in Regensburg on Good Friday in the year 1970. <laughs> I think it's called Gutes Freitag. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. And seeing all the beer boards plastered up with a large <laughs> poster <laughs> of two completely naked people in a close embrace. Now, this crazy. kind of thing created, quote, a propensity for violence. Violence? Oh, yes, and this, I, this is the sentence. Uh, I, I just want. That is why sex films. <laughs> <laughs> I sound yeah. like I'm. I'm yeah. now, now I'm going to yeah. be Miss Anne Elk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and this is this is why the sex films. Sex films. <laughs> Does he identify the sex films? For, by the way, hold on. When, yeah. the way it gets <laughs> better. Yeah. It gets better. It just gets, like just we're talking about the porkies. I see. Yeah. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for, like, so very few people have actually like. And this is why sex films were no longer allowed on airplanes. Uh-oh. Because violence would break out among yeah. the small community of passengers. Yeah. Small community, by the way. <laughs> Not a big plan. Just, Are you watching a sex just, film? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Apparently I'm going to they punch were, you. Get, no give me another bloody There were airplanes where they were showing porn. Is that a German thing? Do you think? I can't. I, I, Was that yes. a Luftwaffe thing? Scheiser and films. Maybe he doesn't understand 
you know what what was going on. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't. I don't yeah. think it was violence necessarily. No. These people were engaged in. But anyway, um, there was a mess- Messerschmitt. Want, I just want to know. I porno. want to know where the airplane that plays porn <laughs> and had to be stopped because violent violence. I think breaking it's, it's out Lufthansa, on the plane. Nine and a half weeks. It is the script. I, I Ratzinger, have, like on a. But seriously, he sounds like Sayyid Qutub in this. I, and yeah. and not only that, but 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 of course the thing about Benedict is he also has in that in the letter a, a rather beautiful passage about what the faith is really about hmm. so you have this extraordinary ranty abraham Simpson type like incoherent <laughs> slightly embarrassing to be honest yeah. with you uh stuff about the 60s no no responsibility taken by himself who was in charge of all sex abuse crisis cases from 1979 until yeah. the 1990s uh, he didn't have sex with them he just ignored them nothing so about the magdalene laundries in yeah. ireland uh no, God, you're not going to get that far. <laughs> but he's this weird mix. He's, he's, he's both this sublime articulator of, of some Christian truths. Um, and, uh, and yet he's this rigid, uncompassionate, rather intellectually incurious, actually, people. Um, but I remember you writing he, during this time. We worked together yeah, at this yeah. time at the Daily Beast, and every second thing that you wrote was this creed accord against the church. And I just the thing that I wonder is how on earth did you manage to stay in the church, remembering what I remember about what you wrote about the church, which was pretty brutal. Uh, yeah, I, uh, how could one not be brutal? I mean, no, I know, but again. how could one stay in the church is the question. Uh, because it's true. Yeah. God, I wish it was here. And, uh, <laughs> yes, Done. No, Done. It's Done. almost a provocation. <laughs> it's not up true. There. Yeah. Um, but it, I, it's nothing I haven't said to his face. So, yeah, no, I know. Uh, well, it's, at some point, that either... either nod towards Hitchens being in heaven, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> either, either Jesus, yeah, um, you know, he transformed human consciousness in a permanent way. Uh, and... Ratzinger actually has this rather beautiful way of expressing that. But it seems that religion itself has this capacity and tendency actually to control rather than liberate. Um, But then when you look at the Gospels, you realize that that is the kind of religion that Jesus very specifically opposed. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the fundamental reason he was eventually crucified. But why is it so common in the sense that even religions, I'm going to take sort of Christian religions, even things that I see as today replacements for religion, I mean, people need, we have these sort of genetic instinct for it. So I see people, you know, that yoga is their religion and they're just obsessed with all they do and they have this kind of... Yoga is interesting. And, 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 I, and the other Never part of my... Say that. <laughs> no, it's interesting in this respect. It's incredibly dull when you're there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've never done but that. I, yeah. My hip hurts. You keep throwing me off. You keep throwing me off. I dig the pants. But for the record. One of the reasons I go to mass is because... Because no. of ritual, because of of movement without words that expresses some kind of truth and commits one to a certain community. And when you have performed those rituals every week for your entire life and you said the same words your entire life, that's, that's an incredible gift, yeah. especially when uh, uh, you actually believe in it. Uh, although how I believe in it is an interesting question. And I am, uh, this is my big project I'm working on, which is a, 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 a 
It's a book called, well, the working title is Sheer Christianity. Mm. Hmm. And the subtitle is uh, Keeping Faith in Modernity. And it's an attempt, it's, a pen, it's a, an attempt to re-describe some aspects of Christianity to thorough modernists, to, to thorough materialist people who are in my class, uh, as it were, the elite and educated class that at this point has a terrible relationship with the most important cultural tradition of <laughs> For instance, two Irish-Italian hybrids from the mid-Atlantic region who are now douchebags? Uh, go fuck yourself, dude. <laughs> I, I, We're not going to talk I, I, about I, I, that. Yeah. Well, you're talking about it, but we're different now. I, honestly, Andrew, people left I, the church in my family. My, my, my fucking people in the family left the church because of that fucking nonsense of touching the boys. Well, yeah. And, and that happened. There was a big exodus because of it's that. Gone. Right? It's, it's gone. It's gone. Yeah. Andrew, yeah. I've, I've one, one moment, because I've, I've, I've been a, a follower of your Sorry. writing for a great moment, for a great period of time, and I'm a lapsed Catholic raising Jews right now. Uh, <laughs> a, 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 a reluctant atheist, um, <laughs> fan of Hitchens, That's never got to meet him. Uh, but I always was, I always really appreciated your expressions of faith about the, the mystery of the Eucharist and the Mass and even the Latin portions. Um, and just like the, the, the beauty of devotion, that's always been something that like, as a reluctant atheist, I've struggled with because, um, there is a comfort to that. And in my weakest and darkest moments, I've kind of tried to reach back to that sense of things, even though intellectually I can't go there. Um, so I just wanted to give you a moment to, of appreciation because the way you've written about oh, it has you. always given me pause. Thank you. Um, just a, a, a thought about that, which is that that the broader culture itself, I think, has made it harder for people to encounter faith in general um, because, uh, first of all, what a lot of people hear as faith is really fundamentalism of of certain kinds. Um, But, uh, uh, yeah, there is – comfort is one way of putting it. Structure and meaning is the other. Um, and to be in that community of those words and live your life through birth, adolescence, marriage, death, it's important to people. And I think one of the things that held this country together in many ways was a, an informal Christianity light, as it were, within our elites and within the broader culture, which is over. Uh, and, you know, for good or ill. But we haven't really found a replacement. What we have is a kind of Christian ethic based upon no metaphysical ground that comes pretty close to just wanting to be comfortable and liking people. Uh, and the question is, how do we recover? Um, and also this thing and the, what the internet has now done to us in making it even harder to be in a situation where you think you need God. I mean, medicine, food, comfort, wealth, all these things push death, push the big things out of your mind, um, TV. And now we have for all those spaces of time, which we, we used to be just bored in. Now we have the internet fueling and feeding us all sorts of other distractions that just, just keep our minds going and away from the big questions. We don't even see the dead anymore. We, we put the elderly in a way so we don't see them. We, we are in denial of death as a culture. And at some point that becomes a problem, I think, for the culture. 
Uh, it doesn't really have resources when tragedy hits. And one of the things I, I, I believed, and I think you see in the heartland, is, is that in the, in the wake of that meaningful community, just the community of people showed up on Sunday and your kids went with it, that, that has led to this awful yawning emptiness there that is, is being numbed by opioids. And there's something incredibly sad about that. We are up against yeah, time. Yeah, and yeah. I, and, and I am it's too. Unf- I have to, I, I actually have to write this call. No, nice it, it, it's unfortunate that I thought we were going to be closing on Bear Week in Provincetown. <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite um, holiday. <laughs> I think it's an English holiday. I'm not sure. You know, so I took, I took, this is, I hope you don't mind, but I took Matt Stone to, yeah. to uh, tea dance in Bear Week, Bear Tea Dance. It just for shits and giggles, really. And um, we were there for a while. He he was totally cool, managed it, and then we left. And I walk back, I said, so what did you make of that? <laughs> it's just all these big, fat guys with no shirts on, with mm. large, hairy backs and, and beards and shit. Uh, he's like, it was exactly like being on the Tokyo subway. <laughs> <laughs> They're that so is, funny. They're still funny. That is a great note to go out on. They, they are the last sort of bulwark against the sort of looming horrible culture. They yes. still are doing it. They're still I fantastic. Am, I Amen. am entrenched yeah. with them. They're, <laughs> they're and, great. And one other thing, though, you know, the other thing that's good about Pretown and the drag queens there is it's very non-PC. It's one super liberal pace, which has... Still got non-PC drag queens. Which are, of course, two different things. A liberal place and PC are I mean, I've never seen a drag queen who was PC. I've, I've seen people talk about transvestites in a way that is PC, but actual drag queens in an actual place and the actual shtick that they do, it's just like it's fundamentally not I would, all I would you, usually all you have let to this do is go going. back to see for the past three or four years the number of times that people have tried to quote unquote cancel RuPaul. <laughs> You're saying fantastic and funny things. Even well, Ellen, just, Ellen we know, we know RuPaul yeah. is a is a cisgender mon- white male monster, yeah. um, but we've got to get out of here. So we can't uh, do we it. can't condemn her right now. Andrew, Bye. Thank you. Bye, Andrew. bye. Thank bye. you. Thanks, for having Thanks, you. Andrew. Yeah, I appreciate it. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse, the fifth column.